Welcome back to Screen Time with Rowan Roper. I'm Ro Khan. I'm Richard Roper. This show is dedicated to everything that you could consume on your screen, whether you go to a movie theater, you're watching at home on television, your big flat screen, or maybe even your computer screen or your phone. Oh, that's why we're calling it Screen Time. I knew there was some sort of tie-in there. Now it has finally been explained to me. Thank you very much. You're welcome. And one of the great traditions around any holiday in America are Dr. Seuss cartoons, and now I am told I am no longer able to watch them. Dr. Seuss has been canceled. At least that was the narrative if you watch certain news programs or listen to certain politicians. You know, Ro, back in the day, some of the fine podcast listeners of Screen Time might not know this, but before I got into the movie reviewing game, for years I wrote a general interest news column for the Chicago Sun-Times and various uh, other outlets across the country, and I would talk about and write about all the issues happening in the world, and I always loved writing about phony outrage, because that was just great column fodder, and man, did we have it in the last couple of weeks. And for three decades, I was a talk show host. I know a little something about phony outrage. We'll talk about that in just a second. But first, reminding you that Screen Time with Rowan Roper is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design and development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing. It all drives your overall business success because they believe today's online world is your opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started. Okay, back to phony outrage. <laughs> the cancellation of Dr. Seuss does seem to be really, really, really overstated. This is so ridiculous. Here's the story as the Associated Press reported it, Row. Six Dr. Seuss books, including And to Think I Saw It on Mulberry Street and If I Ran the Zoo, will stop being published according to the wishes of Seuss Enterprises, which is the foundation, the legacy foundation of the late Dr. Seuss and his family. They, on their own, they actually made this decision last year, but it only came to light in recent weeks. Six of the books, not... The most famous Dr. Seuss books, by the way, you know, not uh, Green Eggs and Ham, and The Grinch That Stole Christmas and The Cat in the Hat and all that stuff. Six of the lesser known titles had there's no way around it. It was racist imagery. It was bigoted uh, material. And they said, you know what, we're just not going to put these out anymore. They're not pulling them all off the shelves because they don't have the rights to do that. And if you want to get these books, you can still get them. But all of a sudden we had, you know, Glenn Beck said it was the end of freedom. The end of freedom. That mm -hmm. was it right there. And all of a sudden we had politicians in the Capitol building holding up big visual aids of the Grinch and the cat in a hat and talking about how the woke left. And suddenly all of a sudden the Biden administration was thrown into this like they've canceled Dr. Seuss. They had nothing to do with it. It was a company decision, a foundation decision to pull six of the books from further publication. And I looked it up. Of the six titles they mentioned, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I never even heard of If I Ran the Zoo. I thought that was a Matt Damon movie by Cameron Crowe a few years ago. That was We Bought a Zoo, which I like, by the way. <laughs> okay, Unfairly you. maligned film. Uh, but I, I haven't even heard of some of these. And the, the, the biggest selling of these sold like 5,000 copies last year, as opposed to the hundreds of thousands of copies of the more well-known Dr. Seuss titles. Do you have any sense of how the foundation came to this decision? Did they put together a blue ribbon commission to look at their work and figure out if they're Why is the ribbon always got to be blue? I Why don't is know. the ribbon got to be blue? But that's what they always make them blue. I, my understanding is that uh, the certain books that educators, different teachers had brought it up and talked about seeing it and parents. So it was not, I don't think it was an organized effort, but good for them. And now this is my favorite part of the story though, Ro. 
there was then this this sudden movement saying, you know what, we're going to show the woke left. We're going to show the left stream media. We're going to show the Biden administration. Whatever you do, go buy some Dr. Seuss books. So in rapid fashion, after this misinformation about Dr. Seuss being canceled was put out there, there was a moment on Amazon where of the top 50 titles of any genre, 42 were Dr. Seuss books. 42 were Dr. Seuss books. And a, one of the most famous right-wing commenters on Twitter, I won't even bother giving you his name, uh, he said, karma's a bitch, is what he wrote. And I'm like, okay, the karma here would be that you just put thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into the pockets of the foundation that pulled the six books. You're not getting back at anybody. This would be like going into a restaurant and finding out they had taken six items off the menu because they thought the items were outdated and unpopular. And you go, well, I'll show you. I'll order 42 items from this restaurant to get back at you. All right. <laughs> I get your point. Point is well made and it's very accurate. However, there is this concern of the sliding slope. And that, again, that's a term that we've been using now for the last half century about things. Well, you know, it's a domino theory or sliding slope. If we let this go, then the next thing that happens is going to be insane as a result of it. Fine. The point being that the sliding or the slippery slope is a place that people really, really fear. But there does seem to be some folks that end up on television every day, every other day with cable news or wherever they happen to be or on the Internet who are calling for the end of somebody's career or some product that's true now i happen to believe as a long-time observer of this you can have a lot of false flag operations like that you can get people from one side claiming to be from the other side because it's going to make the world mad at mm. that other side there's also the people who just do it for their own self-aggrandizement people who want to be self-appointed arbiters of what's right and what's wrong we've known about these people on the right and the left for decades doesn't seem to really make a difference at the end of the day we're still going to have dr seuss books but there is this idea that anything can be canceled in terms of celebrities there have been a ton of people who got canceled because they found themselves on the wrong side of some issue or they they got caught for some proclivity and there's been a lot of decrying here of that well that's the end of their career they'll never come back and not believe that's 100% true. It may not be fair how they ended up where they got, but I have found that unless it's really fair and really obvious, people do slide back into the consciousness. Pee Wee Herman is an excellent example. Yeah, and, and what was his big offense? He was uh, pleasuring himself in a movie theater. Right, a public uh, movie you know, theater. Yeah. And, 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 the, and the guy, uh, Paul Rubens, couldn't find work for a decade plus after that, right? And that was ridiculous. Uh, with the Dr. Seuss case, though, Ro, I, I get what you're saying, and it can be dangerous, I think, to just say let's eliminate everything because it's offensive. And we've talked about this, whether we're talking about old movies like Gone with the Wind or statues, which in a lot of cases I do believe the statue should be taken down. There's a movie we talked about recently. Can I stop you for just yeah. one second there, though? Sure. I want to talk about statues because it, we live in Chicago. There's a commission, Blue Ribbon, by the way. It is again, a Blue Ribbon Commission, okay. Blue Ribbon Commission that was put together to look at all the statues, all the public art, and there's hundreds of statues in Chicago, hundreds, maybe close to a 1,000, actually, by the time mm. you're done. There's a statue of Abraham Lincoln that is in Lincoln Park. Right. In the city of Chicago, in the state of Illinois, which is the land of Lincoln, is a beautiful statue. It's one of the most magnificent statues in all of North America. It is him standing in front of a chair, big chair. It's an iconic statue. It is a grand statue. 
And somehow, someway, that statue made it on a list of statues that need to be reevaluated. Now, why would we reevaluate a statue of the beloved 16th president of the United States standing in front of a chair? Who speaks for the chair? I guess is the question. Huh? Yeah, is I mean, it, listen, that's a great example of, of this gone amok, and that's ridiculous, and that statue should, and I think will stay. Uh, I wanted to mention, like, there was a movie called Moxie that Amy Poehler directed uh, recently, and it's set in this high school where there's all kinds of, you know, issues surrounding woke culture and Me Too, and it's a very, very good film. But at the very beginning, there's a discussion that the summer reading was The Great Gatsby. And a black girl who's a new transfer to the student says, I don't relate to this at all. And then that discussion ensues. And, you know, I would argue in that case that, no, that shouldn't be the only bit of assigned reading. But just because The Great Gatsby is about uh, a bunch of mostly rich white people in a certain era doesn't mean that it should be canceled. It is a, a beautifully written, melancholy, great novel about a certain period of time in America and a certain type of people. And it's as such is still a valuable piece of literature. The thing about the Dr. Seuss thing that killed me was that censorship gets tossed around as a term so often. And it's like the government suppressing your voice and your free speech is censorship. A company on its own deciding to pull six titles of a book is not censorship. It's a decision that, by the way, if in case, if you really want to be cynical, you know, just imagine, you know, Jimmy Seuss and, you know, Lisa Seuss, the <laughs> Seuss great-grandchildren, uh, sitting around going, you know, you know, people just don't, they take us for granted. I know what we can do. Let's pull six of these shitty old books that have outmoded <laughs> racist stuff in them, and we're going to get billions of sales. I don't think that was the plan, but it's certainly what happened. Yes. Oh, those geysels were guily. The Geisels, that was the actual, that was, Dr. Yes. Seuss wasn't a doctor, was he? Yeah, no, he was Oh, well, just like Dr. Jill Biden, you have to always call her <laughs> Dr. Seuss, huh? I, all right, I want to go back to Abraham Lincoln. That's okay. a, another false outrage that Abraham Lincoln is going to be canceled. But there are some people who have called for it. Now, I think this is a good general way of looking at it. You cannot judge people by decisions that they necessarily made in their time that were appropriate to the culture then. Certainly not appropriate to the culture now. But Abraham Lincoln, he was one of the most important figures in human history. Yes. They will make the argument that he really might have been a racist and he didn't care about slavery in the beginning and then he cared about the end. It does not matter. Mm. He was the one who went to war with the rebelling states. He was the one who won the war with the rebelling states. He's the one that signed the Emancipation Proclamation, and he's the one who took a bullet in the back of the head because he did all of that. Absolutely true. Very well said. Now we have to go from the ridiculous to the more ridiculous, not the sublime <laughs> at all, because in the middle of the Dr. Seuss controversy, Mr. Potato Head weighed in. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, Two weeks ago, if you had just you know posted a picture on Instagram of Mr. Potato Head reading a Dr. Seuss book, it would have been the most innocuous thing. Oh, isn't that cute? Now people are saying, what are you trying to say there? That's Mr. Potato Head reading from Dr. Seuss. He's terrible. <laughs> that is an outrage on outrage crime. So what happened with Mr. Potato Head, Ro? And this is another example of this phony outrage or misinformation winning the day. All Hasbro said was they were rebranding the entire, if you will, the Potato Head universe, like the Marvel universe. There's an extended Potato Head universe, and they were just going to call it Potato Head, right? Uh -huh. Mr. Potato Head remains Mr. Potato Head. Mrs. Potato Head remains Mrs. Potato Head. They were not making him gender fluid. They were not removing the Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. They were not saying they. you have to call them they. Oh, ew. All of which, you know what? I don't care. It's a Potato Head. But... 
what people came away from that was saying, oh, they're taking the Mr. away from Mr. Potato Head. Now he's just Potato Head. That's not true. It was the brand itself that was being remarketed just to include all the Potato Head creatures. I don't know. Is there a Potato Head dog, which seems odd? But, I, you know, I was never a huge fan of Mr. Potato Head because I thought, why do I want to take potatoes? My mom is going to mash those later for dinner, and now I'm sticking plastic noses and ears into them. And I always made the Picasso potato head, of course, with the two eyes on the one side. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go back to the 1960s and see how Hasbro marketed Mr. Potato Head. What's new, Hasbro? Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head with their own cars and trailers. That's what's new. See, Mr. Potato Head has a car and boat trailer. And there's a car and shopping trailer for his wife, Mrs. Potato Head. Now, this may surprise people that it was a Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. But what won't surprise people is the fact that, yes, there were very specific gender characteristics assigned to the Mr. Potato Head and the Mrs. Potato Head. Mr. Potato Head, you know, his car did one thing. Her car was for shopping. (laughs) You know, I I mean, and I get all of those are outmoded now. But in the 1960s and the way that the culture was then and, and what was considered to be a standard moray, even though it was not necessarily sociologically accurate, it was the way that we wanted to believe ourselves to be. That's what television was about. That's what the screens and the movies were about. That's what consumerism was about. It's in great measure still what advertising is about. Back then, it was about reinforcing those mores and ideals, even if they were wrong. Well, that's brilliantly put, sir, I must say. And um, if you go back and look at one of the great television series of all time, Mad Men, and I think that's one of the reasons why it was, first of all, you know, beautifully done show and the writing and the acting and everything. But, Rose, as you know, it was set in the world of advertising in the 50s, 60s, and all the way up to like the early 70s. And it wasn't about advertising. It was about the selling of the American culture and how they were selling the American dream, whether it was through, you know, Chevrolet or cigarettes or pantyhose, whatever the case may be. And we saw the white male dominated world of especially like the early 60s and how they marketed everything to make the American consumer, and a lot of cases, the American housewife, if you will, I got to have that. I need that. If I'm going to realize the American dream, I got to have that, including Mr. Potato Head and, and his wife, the shopper. The brilliance of that series, too, is that they showed what life was like when they left the office yeah. and they lived lives like we're living now and like people lived before and like Alexander Hamilton lived where everybody's screwing everybody else mm. and they were getting drunk and not everybody was living by the mores that were set in the popular art of the time if you watched television in the 1950s and the 1960s beaver cleaver's mom yep. wasn't doing it with the milkman or the next door neighbor that was a deleted scene from episode uh, 16 i believe and it was beaver <laughs> cleaver for god's sake and nobody laughed about it but i'm gonna tell you something right now they laughed about it in the writer's room yeah. back then so it was very different it was the public face of america versus the dirty little mind of America. And Mad Men is a wonderful progression of that because it takes you through the Beatles and the rock and roll era. Mm -hmm. It takes you through 1968 and the racial unrest in the country. And the characters then have to confront their own behavior, which back then they didn't see as malign intent. Absolutely true. And, you know, talking about the 60s and you played that little snippet of the commercial, I'm going to throw in a quick plug. If you go to my column, which is at suntimes.com, Uh, I wrote a piece on a lot of other toys and games that would not survive in the 21st century. Not so much because of uh, political implications, but because they could kill you. Oh, God. When you think about the toys we played with when we were kids, not only could they kill you, you could be killed playing with them. 
every gun, toy gun I had as mm. a kid, looked exactly like a real gun. Unbelievable. And the, there were a lot of uh, toys and games that you plugged in. Because, like, the vacuum form, which was, like, you know, basically replicated industrial vacuum technology. So it was this giant hot metal device. And then you poured, like, the plastic mold into it. And then it could, you know, you could make a dolphin or a star or something out of it. And I actually found uh, the entire 23-page manual for the vacuum form, which, by the way, was being marketed to kids. And it actually said the first time you plug it in, it, you will see smoke for five to ten minutes. And it said <laughs> in the instruction booklet, this is normal. So the vacuum form would be one, for example, you're really probably not going to find in your local stores anymore. No. Well, the smoke detector basically killed that toy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when we were done playing with all the dangerous toys, my mom would say, why don't you go down to the park? We'd go down to the corner park, which had a rusty merry-go-round that you could spin around at, like, death-defying speeds. Uh, monkey bars, which would usually be go up about two stories over maybe an inch of sand covering the hard ground. And my favorite, though, was the piano slide. Did you have a piano slide? Do you remember? It might have been before your time, Ro. The piano slide hmm. looked like an upright piano. It was a slide, but it was at an angle where no kid could stay on it. It was definitely made by some sort of sadistic child <laughs> hater, and it was all metal, sheets of metal welded together, which would start kind of rippling. So, uh -huh. And the surface of the piano slide was about 175 degrees yes, in summer. Son. So that was fun for the kids, too. Go on that piano slide and then come home for some lawn darts. One of my earliest memories is uh, going to a friend's house and his dad was an avid gun collector. So the kid had all these toy guns, mm. including a compressed air BB rifle. Jeez. Now he had one of those little safes, you know, a little gray safe that had the little round dial sure, on it. Sure. And somehow he couldn't get it open and decided the best thing we could do, because we'd seen it in all the movies, was shoot the lock off. Oh, jeez. So we <laughs> set the safe up, crossed the room, kept firing at it, with the BB gun, and it would knock it over. Wow. So what my friend's idea was oh, is he was going to sit on the safe while I shot the okay. safe because it wouldn't knock it over, and that would actually open the lock. Uh, uh. Unfortunately for him, I was a bad aim. And one would imagine there's a lot of sensitive material oh, geez. as he had spread his legs right. across the safe. The next stop was an emergency room. Oh, geez. Yeah. And then they just called him Potato Head because they weren't sure he could be a mister after that. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we're, we're coming back. Hold on. A brand new sponsor to Screen Time with Rowan Rubber, Floyd's. Your haircut, your way. Floyd's 99 Barbershop has expert barbers and stylists who take pride in crafting the perfect cut every time. Walk in, book online, or give your shop a call. Learn about their safety practices at floydsbarbershop.com. Safety never looks so good. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go. That's from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, one of the first and most successful Easter eggs in a credit roll. That was fantastic when Ferris told us to go away, go home, the movie's over. It's interesting, Ro, because if people go back and look at old movies, you know, the classics that you watch every year, like It's a Wonderful Life or Casablanca, whatever the case may be, the old practice in Hollywood was to have all the credits at the beginning of the movie. You'd get everything at the beginning. And then, like, for example, at the end of Casablanca, where they say this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship and the two of them walk into the mist, and then it just says the end, and that was it. 
But around the 70s, the, the kind of new wave of American filmmakers in particular, they wanted to get right into the story. They didn't want to have those three minutes of lush credits, you know, before you got right into stuff. So you would get maybe the stars of the film and the name of the film, sometimes even less than that, go right into the movie, and then the credits at the end. And the credits sometimes will go for five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes. And I think Burt Reynolds and Cannonball Run was the first time they started showing the bloopers, you know, where they're blowing the lines and messing up, and that was kind of fun. And then it got more creative as we went through the years where you'd have Ferris Bueller saying goodbye or maybe even a hint of a sequel to come. The James Bond movies did it both ways. James Bond movie had the big ah, yeah. lush open that became the signature. And then at the end, you'd wait to see if there was going to be a sequel or what the title of the sequel right. was going to be. You're right. That So that's actually predates even the stuff we were talking about because that would be in the 60s. And it would say, look for James Bond to return in From Russia with Love. Just a little title like that. You'd say, yes. My favorite of those, James Bond will return in Octopussy. <laughs> Like always, I was sitting through all the credits to see what the name of the new movie was mm -hmm. with my buddy. We were in high school and saw that and thought, no. And that's the thing about these end credits. And sometimes there's even cookies and Easter eggs within the movie itself. You know, fun little self-referential things. I know somebody figured out in Fight Club that somebody has a cup of Starbucks in every single scene in the movie. And, you know, what the political commentary or social commentary was there, it's hard to say. Or the paid product placement. Or, the, or, of course, the lovely product placement. And sometimes that would get out of control in movies. And, of course, the Wayne's World guys had fun mocking that while still getting the product placement in. But even in something like uh, the movie Staying Alive, the uh, unfortunately terrible sequel to The Great Saturday Night Fever, and Sylvester Stallone directed that, and there's a scene in Staying Alive where Tony Manero, the, the John Travolta character, is walking down the street, and he bumps into a guy. And it's Sylvester Stallone, and they kind of look at each other. That, to me, and I love those two guys, Stallone and Travolta, but that, to me, is like, eh, you're just taking us out of the movie and kind of like, you know, kind of a narcissistic, you know, wink, wink, aren't yeah. we cool thing. Of course, with the Marvel Universe, they took it to the next level where you had to sit, and people knew after a while to sit through the credits because you were going to get an actual scene setting up the next movie. And the, the best one of all was after the original Iron Man, where at that point, you know, the Marvel Universe was just coming into being in the 2000s. And at, after the first Iron Man, Nick Fury, the Samuel L. Jackson character, appears in a post credit scene, basically telling Tony Stark that his world's about to get a lot bigger, that he ain't the only Avenger out there and things are going to... And, of course, that's, you know, the beginning of the entire great Marvel Cinematic Universe. So those are kind of cool when they do stuff like that. There's also very funny ones. One of my favorites is from Austin Powers where they actually take you to the funeral of one of the bad guys oh, yeah, who yeah. gets killed in one of the final scenes of the film where he's run over by one of those steamroller, yeah, you know, yeah. like <laughs> pavement roller kind of deals. And then they show you his grieving family yeah, yeah. at the funeral. The wife is like, no one ever thinks about the henchman's family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they also did a thing with, I think it was Will Ferrell playing a, a, a bad guy who gets thrown over a cliff at the beginning of one of the movies. And at the very end, he's still down there. Anybody help? But that's actually a callback to Airplane, the original comedy, which, by the way, you talk about some of the jokes are like mm, a little cringe-inducing, but that movie is still hilarious. I recently rewatched it. But the Robert Hayes character, you know, who was once a pilot but then had this horrible experience, he's a cab driver, right? And he gets out of the cab to chase his ex-girlfriend, Julie Haggerty, and there's a passenger in the cab. And at the end of the movie, he's still waiting in the cab, and he says, I'll give him 20 more minutes. And the joke is the meter's running through the entire duration of the movie. 
And then I also love uh, the Bollywood tradition, of course, where you get these giant dance numbers sometimes over the closing credits, even if the movie wasn't a traditional Bollywood musical. And so, for example, the you know the great film Slumdog Millionaire, at the very end, after the story, the incredibly moving and romantic and epic story has all played out, uh, virtually the entire cast is in a train station and they do this amazing Bollywood dance number and you even get to see like the actors who played Dev Patel and Frida Pinto's characters as kids they're dancing and it's just this beautiful life affirming uh, so I don't know if you want to call that an easter egg but it's certainly like a, a, an extra present well, a, the, cookie, a cookie for you yeah well it's designed to take you back away from the emotion of the movie yeah. it's designed to say alright this is a very sad movie a lot of horrible things happen but it's still just a movie I know I was shocked to find that out. But wait a minute. That's him as a young kid, and they're together now. I think it's a fascinating thing. I, yeah. I don't like it when American films do it, but in Indian films, it is really cool to see because the dance numbers are beautifully choreographed. Amazing. And it, it, it's like a curtain call, essentially, for it all is, of the actors. That's, that's a great way of putting it. I will say the one American film I thought that had a lot of fun with it is a comedy that I've always been uh, touting because it got kind of swept under the rug. It's called Isn't It Romantic uh, with Rebel Wilson and uh, Liam Hemsworth, and it's it's a whole romantic comedy about romantic comedies, and at the very end, she's like, you know, of course, she wins the guy and realizes her best friend, spoiler alert, was there all along, and they really are perfect mm -hmm. for each other. But the Rebel Wilson character goes, oh, great, I guess we'll just end now with one of those musical numbers. And then they do this whole flat-out huge musical production number with the cast, and again, you could see the cast had a blast making that kind of final cookie for us. So we'll leave you with this from Coming to America. Mm -hmm. There are two Easter eggs. One is of Eddie Murphy's old white guy barbershop character. Way down in the jungle deep, the lion stepped on the signified monkey's feet. The monkey said, hey, you bastard, can't you see? You're standing on my goddamn feet. Hey, what is this, velvet? And that's actually a line from Dolomite is my name. So it's sort of a wink and a nod and an inside joke inside the cookie that is the Easter egg. See? Huh? Cool. And nerds love that. Yep. We're talking about it. Yep. And then there's this. She's your queen to be. A queen to be forever. A queen who'll do it his highness desires. Uh, you'll never hear She's Your Queen quite the same way after hearing John Legend do his legendary performance of it. The funny thing about that is it's John Legend in his living room at his piano, which for the last year since the pandemic, that's all we see of John Legend. Well, you know Chrissy Teigen's just off camera in the kitchen doing or saying something that's got everybody all worked up. I love her. And every Tuesday, we tell you who to follow. Who should we follow this week? My pick to click this week, row is an Instagram account called at Passenger Shaming. All one word, Passenger Shaming. Fantastic place where you can see all the great photos people take of train, bus, mostly plane passengers behaving horribly. 
the jerk that puts his bare feet on the seat right behind you, the people that bring their hot wings and sauce onto the plane and start eating it, all those viral moments where you see breakdowns, where someone goes after the flight attendants because they're making them wear a mask, all that stuff and more on passenger shaming. It's an Instagram account. Then they also have some really heartwarming, lovely moments where you see a reunion or somebody being kind to someone else on the subway. So passenger shaming uh, is an Instagram account. Follow it. It's a lot of fun because you feel like a superior human being seeing all these horrible people misbehaving. <laughs> That's what the internet is all about. Roan Rover Podcast is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. And as always, we want to thank everybody who's finding us, whether it's on Google Podcasts or Spotify or Apple, whatever the case may be. We love when you follow us. We love you even more if you subscribe and tell your friends. We'll be back with another Screen Time podcast later this week, looking at some of the best streaming shows and movies brand new that you cannot miss. Screen Time with the Roan Roper is executive produced by Tim Melanius and Renee Nelson. Brian Alzheimer is our music and production director. See you next time.